Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to worship with you today, isn't it? Uh, Can we go ahead and just uh, thank the worship team for leading us so well today? And you know, we do that from time to time to just uh, give recognition and honor for the time, the faithfulness, the ministry, the giftedness that is present and given. But every other time, you know how we do that thing we applaud at the end of the songs? In those moments, we're not applauding them. We're not applauding the performance. We're applauding the Lord, right? And so I'm reminded, even as we sing that new song this morning, uh, here we are two weeks out from Holy Week, but we are still singing that Jesus died and rose again because he's still risen. Amen. And every weekend we celebrate that fact and we give praise and applause to that fact. So it is good to be here in the house of the Lord together. My name's Taylor. Uh, I'm the worship pastor. That's why I'm raving about the music. I'm a little biased. Um, But I'm really excited to get into this book, into God's Word. So if you have your Bible, you can open it to Romans 6. And if you don't have a Bible here or you forgot it, ushers are coming down the aisles. Just put your hand up and they'll get a copy of this book in your hand so you can read along with us and see what it's saying. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can keep this, that copy you get as a gift from our church to you. So open to Romans 6, and uh, last week, Pastor Cal kicked off a new series of messages we're calling How People Change, and it was a fantastic, powerful word, a great way for us to begin this series, that the Bible, this book, is the truth, and within it, it reveals to us Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, the one who ultimately defines our reality. And so over the next few months, as we seek to understand and experience this idea, how people change, would it begin by us going to God's word, going to what Jesus ultimately says defines reality in our existence, and would we let that inform us and change us? And as I was uh, thinking about that, I was thinking about uh, something in my life. I love uh, movies and TV shows. I think a little while back, Pastor Cal gave me grief in a sermon because I love going to the movie theater. What's wrong with that? The movie theater is amazing. It's a magical place. You go and enter a new world every time you go in and see a movie. And that's what I love about stories told on screen. That when we look at these stories, that it has a way of, of moving us, of making us think deeper about life, of reflecting on our life and reality. And after I watched something really good that's made me think, I find myself wanting to research, listen to podcasts, read uh, articles, and to figure out on a deeper level what the thing means, what it was about, what I was supposed to take away from it. But there are some things, if you have this, you watch something and you're just walking away being like, huh? What was that about? That was weird. Did that mean anything? And from time to time, we watch stuff like that. And a recent example I can think of is this critically acclaimed indie art film I just saw it two weeks ago called the uh, the Mario Brothers movie, Super Mario Brothers movie. And like after watching that, I just went on Reddit on the recesses of the internet and was just trying to figure out the hidden meaning of the movie. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not that guy. But I do want to talk about another movie. that, that its meaning has been widely debated. There's countless interpretations of it. It's been this way for a long time. It's called 2001, A Space Odyssey. We got one laugh. We got other, I feel, I, I didn't know what response to expect in saying that movie. But anyways, we're gonna talk about it for a bit. This guy on the screen, his name's Stanley Kubrick, and he directed this film, and he refused to explain what it meant to the public. 
And maybe if you're familiar with it, you're thinking, oh, wasn't there a book with the same title that came out at the same time? If people wondered what it meant, they should have just read it. Well, Stanley Kubrick said that the book and the film, their meanings and interpretations were not the same. They had different uh, creators. And so he pushed back on that. And so here's the thing. This movie came out in 1968. That's an old movie, isn't it? Like, is anyone surprised that I've even seen this film? Like, who, who young people, who's never heard of this movie before? A lot of hands. Look around, friends. Everyone under 35 just learned about a new movie today. <laughs> Wild. And this movie came out in 1968, but it wasn't until 2018, just uh, five years ago, when an interview with Stanley Kubrick from 1980 that had never been released before was made public. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of the movie and what it means, um, because no spoilers, right? But also, it's very abstract, and if you're not a nerd like me, you'll be very bored and check out. And we're here in the first five minutes. I can't have you check out yet, because we haven't even gotten to the Bible. But on some level, this is what we want to do today, that if we want to understand and experience how people change, understand the meaning of our life, understand our purpose, understand what we were made for, then it demands that we go back to our creator, back to his word, back to Jesus' definition of reality, and to allow that to be the thing that teaches us and informs us. And if you're taking notes, that's, that's our big idea today, that I can identify the power to change in something outside myself. And we'll see this in Romans 6. But before we jump in, I just want to provide a little bit of quick context for where we find ourselves in this book, uh, Romans, which you can turn to if you haven't already. It's a letter by the Apostle Paul, uh, who was a leader of the church in the first century that Jesus called to build his church. And he wrote this to the churches in the city of Rome. We still know that city. But there in the first century, this, uh, one of the churches were comprised of a variety of types of people, of Jews and, and Gentiles. And this wasn't super common back then. So because this church had this very diverse background, uh, uh, religiously, culturally, racially, uh, Paul does in this letter, his most, it's called his most theological letter. It, he provides his most deep and extensive teaching of the gospel, Ultimately, the good news to the Jew, to the Greek, to the Gentile, for all people. And so in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul begins by showing humanity's universal need for righteousness in the face of our impending judgment for sin. Then in the following chapters, he says that, that, uh, that righteousness is found by grace through faith in Jesus alone. If you don't know it, that's the gospel. And then here in Romans 6 through 8, this is where we're going to be as a church for the next month, going through these chapters. And what we're going to see here is that Paul spells out the change that comes in response to grace. That the gospel, its reception, leads to a change. And so looking forward to experience that as a church. I would encourage you, uh, you know, if you, you would come to church specifically the next month and really uh, lean into what uh, is available here and this change that I believe that we'll all experience by God's grace. But he begins his letter by trying to get us first to recognize that I need to change. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. Recognize I need to change. See, if there was one passage that embodies the first five chapters of Romans, it would be Romans 3, 23. I'm going to throw this up on the screen. It says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice and offering in our place by his blood to be received by faith. Now what this is saying is that all of us are in need of change. We're all in need of salvation, of righteousness, of a goodness, a correct living that we can't do. And so my question for you would be this morning, have you recognized that need in your life? And a step further than that, if you've recognized the need, have you come to find that that need is met by God in Jesus? And it makes me think of our Good Friday services just a few weeks ago. We spent time looking at characters who embodied people that had met Jesus in the book of John, and they were reflecting on their experience with Jesus on the day that he died. And we looked at these characters, not just to hear their stories, but for it to illustrate for us that without Jesus, if Jesus had died and never rose again, that we would all be left without the change that we're looking for, without the life that we long for. And whether we admit it or not, Every single one of us has felt this sense that something is missing, that we are not enough. And maybe you've felt that and you've tried to change it. You've tried to fix it. Maybe you've looked inside yourself and tried to find the things that maybe I need to follow this feeling and act upon this and identify as this and, and, it, and you're here. And if, again, if you're honest, it's not working. Maybe you would say it's not been something inside yourself, but you've gone to something outside yourself. You've looked at your circumstances, your relationships, your job, your location, and you've changed those things thinking that it would fix the need, the, the, the missing piece there, but it hasn't worked either. What I want to invite you to see today and over the next month here in God's word at Harvest is that that thing that you're looking for is found in Jesus. And my invitation to you would be give it a try. Come the next few weeks. Do the things that are said here from the pulpit and see if it leads to the change that you're looking for. I believe that it will. And I'm excited to see it. Now, some of us in the room, we have recognized that need. And in fact, we have come to the belief that that need is met in Jesus. We've put our faith in him. And maybe that's you and you're sitting there thinking, great, I'm good to go. Mission accomplished. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I've got grace for every failure. I've got a ticket to eternal life in Jesus. But here's the thing. The need for change is not just for those who don't yet know Jesus. The need for change does not stop when you become a Christian. And this is the exact thing that Paul is saying here in Galatians 6.1, that we all need change. So read with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And again, maybe you're there and you are a Christian, you believe in the gospel and you're sitting there asking yourself, why do I need to change? I've got grace, I've got salvation, I've got a ticket to heaven. Paul says it here. You need to change because you have changed. You are changed. That is your identity. It was said last week, but the saying is true. A faith that hasn't changed you hasn't saved you. And I don't say that to shame you, to make you doubt the sincerity of your faith, though maybe you should. But as you do that, would you not stay in a place of shame 
or doubt. But today, here and now, would you wake up? Would you get off the bench back into the game? Would you get back to work? Some of us who call ourselves Christians, we have settled into a lukewarm faith, a cultural Christianity, and we need to be brought back to our senses. Some of us have grown numb to conviction over sin. Some of us have given up on the painful, difficult, refining, narrow journey that is life with Jesus. And I want to tell you today, there's more. There's better for you. Your experience as a Christian, life with Christ, it's more than what you're currently experiencing. And he wants you to experience that. He wants you to change. So listen, in order to begin to change, that's the first thing, to find the power to change. We need to recognize our universal need for change. But we all know that just to know our need is not enough to meet the need. It's not enough to experience change, no. The second thing that we must also do is we must believe that we are already changed. Believe I am changed. We're gonna see this in the following verses. Read with me as Paul continues in verse three. He says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He is risen for the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Here it is. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Believe I am changed. Now we just read some beautiful, rich verses, so much a theological truths and depths. And if I were to sum up what we see in those verses we just read, it would be this theological concept called union with Christ. Now don't get lost. It's less complicated than it sounds. What it means is simply this, that by grace, through faith in Jesus, faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we are united with Christ. Paul refers to this idea 164 times in his writings alone, repeating phrases like, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, or in him. And I don't know if you see it here, but in the 14 verses alone that we're looking at today, this idea is there nine times, in Christ, with Jesus. That's our identity. Our identity at birth was in sin through Adam, but by faith in Christ, we have been changed. We are changed. We have a new identity. And here's what that means, church. That in his life, because Jesus was perfect, God now says, you've been perfected. In his death, because Jesus paid the price for your sin, you have now been forgiven. The power of sin is broken. In his resurrection, because Christ rose again to life, having victory over sin and death, we are now made alive 
and we have victory and over sin and death. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Amen. How often do you functionally not believe that? Because we're here on Sunday, we'd say, oh yeah, amen. Yes, I believe that. But the problem is more often than not, Christians, we who claim to be in Christ, that we fail to truly believe that that is our identity, that we have been a changed. And as we think about how this plays out in our lives, maybe you're sitting there thinking, don't tell me that I don't believe this. I, I'm saying I believe the gospel. I really, I really, really do. But I wanna break down for us and help us see, consider three common lies that we get caught in believing that stand in opposition to our union with Christ, the fact that we have been changed. So here it is, three lies that we believe. The first, I am still defined by my past. Saying things like, I know God has forgiven me, but has he really forgiven me of that? Yes, he has. Or I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Here's the thing, you don't need your forgiveness. You don't need to forgive yourself. You need God's forgiveness and that's enough. Or I know God has forgiven me, but the person that I sinned against hasn't. And if that's you, that's a hard place to be, but here would be my encouragement to you, that you would ask their forgiveness, that you would take responsibility for your sin against them, that you would seek to make it right. And if you haven't done that, would you do that now? Because God has forgiven you if you've repented and put your faith in Jesus, but he also demands us to take the steps of making our, our sin right and making it right with those we've sinned against. So do that. But if you do that and the person still doesn't forgive you, here's what Romans 12, 18 says. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Seek to make it right. But if you can't, you've done your part and, and you're forgiven and that's all you can do. Or maybe you'd say something like, I've asked, God forgi I've asked forgiveness of God, but no one else knows about it and, it and it haunts me. Again, if you have committed a sin and you've asked forgiveness of the Lord, but haven't yet told your spouse or your small group or, or someone who can help you keep, keep you accountable, help you walk through uh, what you're facing as a result of that, would you do that? Would you believe that God will bless your humility, your obedience, to make things right, to bring your sin to the light. And I know that there might be people in the room who are actively experiencing consequences for sins that you have committed in your past, and you may continue to, but that's not who you are in Christ. You're not defined by your past. Colossians 3.3 says this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you know this, that by faith in Jesus, God looks down on you. He does not see you, your past, your failure. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Psalm 103, I love uh, that new song our church has been singing that was written from its truths. Such a good psalm. In verse 12, it says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We're not defined by our past. A second common lie that we believe is this. I will always struggle with fill in the blank. Now that's a blank that's gonna be left blank in your notes and I'm sorry if that breaks your brain. If you love filling in those blanks. And if you really do, then maybe you should put something there. Maybe you should put something that God is convicting of you, you have in laying in your heart. Have you ever said that before? Have you ever heard someone say that? As I was preparing for this sermon, as I was studying at a coffee shop this week, I forgot my headphones. And so I wasn't eavesdropping. I just happened to overhear a conversation. 
It wasn't intentional. I wasn't being a busybody. I just happened to hear it. But anyways, right next to me, there was an older pastor who was meeting with a, a younger guy, a guy in his 20s. They weren't from our church, so I don't know who they were. You don't know who they were. But I thought it was really beautiful to see an older man pouring into a younger man. That's what scripture calls us to, that older uh, men and women saints that we're supposed to pour into the younger uh, men and women, the saints. Would we do that? It's awesome to see. But something the young guy said stuck out to me. He said this, he said, I'm sure that when I'm 70 like you, I'll still struggle with that. And that's so sad to hear. Like you're in your 20s and you don't believe that over the next five decades of living that that thing can't be overcome, that you can't be changed. And that breaks my heart. I don't say that to judge that young man, but how often is this us? How often do we believe that very same thing? That I believe in the gospel, I believe I'm changed, and I believe that I have changed, but that sin, that struggle, that thing, that area of my life, I will always struggle with that. That's not the truth. Do you not believe that who you are in Christ means that you've been freed from sin? Do you not believe that in Christ you have victory over sin? I heard a pastor years ago say it this way. I'm dead to that in terms of our sin. But maybe you'd flip that and say, that's dead to me. It's dead weight that we're no longer meant to carry. And to believe that we'll always struggle with that, let it, let it go. Don't carry that anymore. That's not who you are in Christ. Your past sins that you're holding on to, you're carrying around what the cross has paid for, what Jesus has covered. And so let go of the baggage. The last lie that we commonly believe is this. I'm, first, I, I'm identified first by fill in the blank. Another blank that's left empty. And again, if you want to fill that out with something that God is laying on your heart, please do so. And maybe that thing that you would put in that blank, maybe it's your past. Maybe it's that thing that you say, I'm always going to struggle with that. Maybe it's something we've already identified. And great, if that's the case, God is convicting you. God keeps bringing that to mind because that's the thing that he wants to change. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your appearance, your home, your job, your title, your performance. See, whether the thing that you would put there, the thing that you would identify yourself first by, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing, it is a lie for us to identify first by anything other than who we are in Christ. Because here's the thing. If that thing that we would put there is a positive thing, then on our good days, when things are going well, we believe that there's something good in us, something that has proven us worthy and given us meaning outside of Christ. And when it's a negative thing, on the difficult days, what we do, we put that thing there as the first thing about us, and we fail to truly believe that Christ has paid for this thing on the cross, that the empty tomb means that this thing is now dead. It does not define me. You're identified first in Christ. And again, is that, is that true of you? Is the first thing that people think about when they think about you is that you're in Christ? Is the first thing that you think about yourself that you are found in Christ's life, death, and resurrection and what that means for you? A few years ago, I was uh, updating my fancy email signature. Do you guys have one of those? With like your title, maybe your business logo, maybe your website link. Maybe like a nice little quote from Mark Twain or something. 
I was updating mine and right above my name, instead of putting yours truly or sincerely or sent from iPhone, I put, uh, I put in Christ. And the reason that I did that is because Pastor Dave also does that and I wanna be just like him. <laughs> no, I can remember years ago, I was talking with Pastor Dave and he was telling me this story about how his father-in-law uh, for years and years and years had a business card and his business card was his name and then right under it, bondservant of Christ. And it's the 21st century, so no one uses business cards anymore, right? So he's like, I'll put it in my email signature in Christ before my name. Because that's who I want people to think about me first. That's what I want to think about myself first. Here's the added benefit. If your email uh, ends in Christ, it's really hard to press send on that rude, scathing email. Like maybe we should all put that in there just to stop some emails from being sent. But I did that because I love that heart and I want that to be true of me. That the first thing people think about when they think about me is that I'm found in Christ. That the first thing that I think about myself is the glorious and beautiful reality of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Because whatever other label that you would put to fill in the blank that you are identified first by, that thing needs to be dethroned by the truth that you are first identified in Christ. Because here's what this means. In Christ, you are not first whatever you would fill in that blank with. Before that, what God's word says you are in Christ is that you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You've been brought near to the presence of God. You are lavished in the riches of grace. So in Christ, you are not first your failure. You are forgiven, confident, faithful, self-controlled, blessed, grateful. In Christ, you are not first your success. You are God's workmanship, a citizen of heaven, a member of Christ's body. In Christ, you are not first a mother. You are established, anointed, a light in the world of goodness and truth. In Christ, you are no longer an alcoholic. You are sealed. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, you are not first fatherless. You've been adopted into God's family and your heavenly father calls you son and daughter. In Christ, you are not your health condition. You are alive. You have breath in your lungs. You are loved. You are a temple where the presence of God dwells. In Christ, you are not first known as a divorcee. You are reconciled to God and you are now a minister of reconciliation to others. In Christ, you are not first an addict. You are free. You're redeemed, holy and blameless, called a saint. That is who you are in Christ. The enemy so badly wants you to think that you are defined by anything other than Christ. Because here's the thing. If you don't believe that you have changed, if you don't believe that you have a new identity in Christ, how could you ever believe that you will change? How could you ever believe that you have the power to experience change in your life? But if you have been united with Christ, you already have been changed. That's your present status. So would we believe that truth and would our living flow from it? Receive this today if you've missed it. In your life, you may have sin bents, you may have struggles, you may have a past, you may have history, you may have baggage, you may be carrying dead weight, but here at the foot of the cross, that's not who you are anymore. The gospel says that in Christ, we are glorious things. So let's embrace that identity in the way that we live, right? We've established, we all need change. And if we believe in the truth of the gospel, that means we have been changed. And so now, 
The question is, will we continue to change? What does it look like for us to continue to experience change? Read with me in verse 11 again. Here's what it says. This is the turning point of the whole book and passage. Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That verse right there, that's the first command in the whole book of Romans. Because so far, Paul has spent his whole time teaching, explaining, here's what the gospel means. But now it turns. This is the first call to action, the first command. Here's what it looks like for the gospel to be lived. And we can't miss this because the Bible, it's teaching. It has no concept in here of someone who says that they believe in the gospel, that they've been changed by the gospel, but their life doesn't reflect it. And if that's you, if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, you say, I believe in Jesus, but nothing in your life reflects the way of Christ, you need to strongly reconsider if you really believe the gospel because it demands you to continue to change. And that's the third uh, thing we see in these uh, next verses. Read with me first, the rest of the verses, verses 12 through 14. Here's what it says. Let not sin... Therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul says this, that you need to consider yourself dead to sin. You need to consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, in your union with Christ, you have been changed. And the response to that truth, he says, now, because you've been changed, present your members, not as instruments of sin, but instruments of righteousness. Live like you've changed. Live believing that by the power of the gospel in the spirit that you can continue to change. He says that, let not sin reign in your body. Don't let it make you obey its passions. Why? Because sin will have no dominion over you. You are no longer a slave to sin. Grace is now your master. And this process that's described here, this process of continuing to change, you might've heard this in church before, but that a word for it is sanctification. Because here's how salvation works. It begins with one moment where you put your faith in Jesus and you are justified. You are forever, eternally changed. You have a new identity. But salvation is not just that one moment. It's from that moment, an ongoing process for the rest of our lives as we become more like Jesus, sanctification. And maybe you've heard this process described this way, that it includes putting off and putting on. In other words, that sanctification, this process where I continue to change, here's what it requires of me. It requires me to put off, to die to my old ways, to die to the power of sin, to die to my former identity in the flesh, to put it off. That's not who I am anymore. And in its place, to put on now that I'm alive in Jesus, I'm I'm a new creation. I now exist for righteousness. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna get really specific and into the process of what that will look like for you, of the steps that it will take for you to begin to change, for you to put off, 
to kill your flesh, to die to your sin, and to put on a new way in Jesus. And again, I'd encourage you to be here because I just so believe with all my heart because I know my need for change, because I believe that I've been changed, because I see ways and things that need to change in me, and I want God to change them. And over the next few months, there are things in your life that God is going to change. Would we believe that? There's this uh, old Christian pamphlet called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anyone heard of this before? And I tried to find on Google Images the oldest version of a cover I could find. I don't think I could find the original because I can vividly remember in the lobby of my church growing up, we kind of still have like a pamphlet area. In my church growing up, there's the pamphlet area and the lobby and there's this pamphlet. But it's really good. It uses uh, this picture of a home that our heart, our life is a home that is in need of renovation and change. It's kind of like that show uh, Fixer Upper. Anyone like that show? I don't even know if it's still happening, but I know people make the pilgrimage to Waco, Texas to visit Chip and Joe Anna Gaines's property and whatnot. And we love that idea. Oh man, buy the terrible house, the worst house in the neighborhood, get in there, demo day, take all the stuff out and in its place, put like the finest things from, uh, from Crate and Barrel and wherever it is, Stouffer Homes, and we love that. Oh man, that's so cool. But here's the thing, don't nudge your spouse next to you and be like, see, I told you, he's gonna say we need to do that home project. <laughs> hey, don't forget, buddy, yard work this afternoon. Spring cleaning. Because that's not what I'm talking about. See, this picture is a picture of what's happening in us. That we are a home that is in need of renovation and change, that there are things in here that need to go. There are things in its place of my old ways that need to be refurnished. But here's kind of the cool thing, I was thinking about this. When you think about a home renovation, the value of your home is contingent upon the market and the good old economy, right? And even that aside, let's say you've just freshly renovated your house. Well, it looks amazing, it's awesome, it's the best it's gonna be, but something's gonna break tomorrow. Something's gonna be need, to, need to be replaced tomorrow. And even then, let's say you've got the best, most awesome house renovation, like two years from now, your house isn't gonna be cool anymore. The trends are gonna have changed. So good luck, renovate your house again. But that's where the imagery ends, because for you and me, that's not the case. Once we have been purchased, we are now owned, our master is now Jesus, the value of us is unchanging and the trajectory of the rest of our life is only with more renovation and change and growth until one day this life will end and you will stand before your precious savior and he will say the words to you, well done my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest, join me in paradise forever. And he will say those words to you, not because you've changed, not because you've been better, not because you've grown, not because you've proven yourself more acceptable. He will say those words to you because you are found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You belong to him. But even though he's gonna say those words to us, no matter, despite ourselves, because he's gonna say that, it demands us to begin to live like it. So as we close, there's gonna be a, Three ways to respond. 
The first way that we're gonna have to respond is in a moment there's gonna be a closing song. And that's gonna be an opportunity to respond. Do you know that church? That the closing song is an opportunity to respond to the word of God. That's not uh, background music, exit music. It's not like the song and the credits at the end of a movie. All right, now it's time to go. The service doesn't end when the sermon is over. Do you know that? That should be the most important moment of the service because we have just been cut to the heart by the word of God. We have been convicted and challenged and encouraged and comforted. And we're thinking, even as we sing this song, God, God, what, what were you speaking to me in that? God, what do I need to do as a result of the word of God? And we respond to receiving the word of God by giving back praise, worship, surrender, repentance. It's a beautiful opportunity to respond. And would we be a church that responds to the word of God in worship? The second way that we're gonna have to respond, um, maybe you put away your notes and sorry if I tricked you, take your notes back out. Whether it's our paper, your journal, your phone, and even if you haven't been taking notes this whole time, take your phone out, open a new note. Let's see movement, this isn't theoretical. Let's get our notes out, something we can write down. Everyone, because before you leave this room, before you leave that seat, before you go on to the next thing, I want you to write down on that piece of paper and answer this question, what needs to change? And I believe that the spirit of God, the word of God has already been convicting you, has been revealing things. So whether it's one thing, three things, 100 things, write them all down. Put those things, just like that song we sang earlier, I lift my hands up and I lay my whole life down. My whole life now is for you. And God, we would say, these things need to change. These things need to go. These things need to come. This character, this good fruit of the spirit, I, I need that to happen, God. Would we write these things down and begin to pray over them and believe that over the next few months, those very things we will experience change and transformation in. That God is in the work of making us who we already are in Christ. So would we commit to that? Would we step forward believing that that will take place? And here's the last way to respond. In a moment on the screen, there's gonna be a God at work video as we look back on the baptisms that took place two weeks ago here. And I kind of glossed over it earlier, but I don't know if you saw it here in these verses, that the word baptism is mentioned three times. Now, baptism is ultimately a metaphor for an irreversible identity change that has taken place in Christ. And so here at Harvest, if you were here two weeks ago, right in that tank, we were baptizing people saying, it is my privilege based on the profession of your faith to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And here's the awesome thing. Baptism is an act of obedience. That's what we said two weeks ago. It's an opportunity for someone to do what Jesus said to do. It's also an opportunity to stand and proclaim the truth of the gospel, that it has changed your life, to say in front of your church family to the public, I stake my life in Jesus, he is my foundation. It's an impactful event where we stand and do that. But here's the thing, baptism isn't primarily about a powerful moment, but it is a lasting picture memory of the work of salvation of the change that has taken place, of the change that is needed, of the change that I believe for you will come in Christ. 
So as we celebrate that on two weeks ago, 84 people were baptized. Can we just give God praise for that? Like, that's incredible. Would we never stop giving God the glory and praising him for that fact that 84 people came forward to identify with Christ, to believe that they've been brought from death to life. So would we celebrate those stories of change and give God the glory? But would it not just be that? Would it also be a picture that stirs our hearts to worship, to change, to say as we look at that picture over and over again of the work of salvation, the change that has taken place here, the change that needs to take place, that we would believe it will take place, that we have the power to change in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the truth of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and watch these stories, give God the glory and respond in a moment.